This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez-Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Film, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Jennifer Fay, Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Arts, as well as English and German Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Professor Fay is also the Director of Film Studies at this institution. She co-edited the Contemporary Film Director Series for University of Illinois Press and has served on the board of directors at Belcourt Theatre from 2012 to 2018. A few months ago, in the spring and summer of 2021, she was a fellow at Cinepoetics Center for Advanced Film Studies at the Free University in Berlin, Germany. Jennifer Fay is doctor in film studies by the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she is also the author of Theaters of Occupation, Hollywood and the Re-Education of Post-War Germany, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2008, and co-author of Film Noir, Hard-Boiled Modernity and the Cultures of Globalization, published by Rutledge Press in 2010. Hello, Professor Fay, and welcome to New Books in Film. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about your new book, Inhospitable World, Cinema in the Time of the Anthropocene, published by the Oxford University Press in 2018. Inhospitable World has been named a choice outstanding title by the American Library Association, one honorable mention for the 2019 ASLE Ecocritical Book Award, was shortlisted for the 2019 Best Moving Image Award, Krasna Krauss Foundation, and was recognized at Vanderbilt in 2020 with the Chancellor's Award for Research. I am obviously more than happy to have this interview with you, Professor Fay, and thus offer our audience a close-out look to this remarkable and insightful book. Yes, well, thank you very much. Um, it's I've had some time to reflect on the book since it was published, um, and I'm very happy to talk about sort of where its origins and some d- directions of my thinking, you know, since the book was published. So... I'm happy to, to start wherever um, you're most interested in starting. Professor Fay, um, before we start to talk about your book itself, could you please tell us a bit about your academic life and the previous work you have been doing? Yes, thank you. Um, well, 
as you noted, I, I did my PhD at Wisconsin, which um, at the time I was there was very um, historical and archival based. So I've been trained and have been working um, in uh, sort of film aesthetics and politics with research that is informed by the archive. And then I've also turned more recently, as you know, to environmental studies and some of the philosophical considerations of hospitality and human dwelling in the world. Um, My first book is based on the dissertation. I'll just say a few words about this. This is Theaters of Occupation. You've already mentioned this, Hollywood and the Re-Education of Post-War Germany. Um, And it's a book um, that I was working on during the um, American occupation of Iraq, where there was a lot of interest in looking back to previous good examples of occupation. First, And second, there was an interest, not an interest, I mean, I feel like U.S. foreign policy was predicated on short wars and long long occupations, that occupation has become a form of international governmentality that is distinct from colonialism, though it bears close resemblance to this, and is also purporting to fundamentally change through military power the way um, a civil government and civil society operates. So what interested me... um, about the, the current political culture was why Germany was this good example. And it was interesting to me in particular that Hollywood films were brought to Germany after World War II to re-educate the Germans, to train them through Hollywood cinema and how to be democratic citizens. Um, initially, one interpretation of this was that cultural re-education was just an alibi to establish Hollywood's post-war market dominance, and it totally was that. That was absolutely at the center of this, and a faith that capitalism and free markets would you know, liberate the world. But the archive also makes clear that this was a genuine campaign rooted in the belief that American culture is a democratic culture. That is, that was a sincere belief. <laughs> um, and that Hollywood films could, in fact, tutor defeated people in the behaviors. And this really interests me. In the gen- gestures, the genres, and the mythologies of a democratic sociality. So this book takes that seriously and then considers the films, um, and not just um, feature films, but also documentaries and newsreels, the whole film program um, that were shown in the occupied territory through these like theatrical touchstones of occupation mimicry and what I think is the performative force of American liberalism. And some of the questions animating that study is like, what does it mean to ask Germans to imitate American actors imitating American characters? You know, what are the useful lessons and darker truths about American democracy that Hollywood films, you know, tell us? That is, I think these films do tell us a lot about America's racist and genocidal underpinnings. Um, the inseparability of capitalism from consumer citizenship and America's sort of recurring exclusionary violence. But these are also films that do tell us something about how democracy is lived. Um, and so like there's, there's actually something real happening there in thinking about American cinema as a democratic cinema at this particular moment where market capitalism is understood as the post-war gateway to some kind of more lasting peace. Um, I also look at a number of German films that were uh, made um, under the mandate of re-education. And these, I think, are very ironic films that are um, understanding how uh, bizarre it is that you could use cinema to instrumentalize free and liberal forms of thought. So that was the first book. And um, it took me a long time to research. And I went to many different archives and had to find films that, you know, aren't generally available 
Um, and then also to kind of put together what might be like um, a film program, like what newsreels were paired with what documentaries with what feature films? And how do we start thinking about an entire like media ecology of the occupation? Um, my second book is a co-written book, and I've done articles in between, but I'll just talk about the books um, with my friend and um, colleague Justice Neeland on film noir, um, hard-boiled modernity and the cultures of globalization. And what brought me to that is recognizing that in both Germany and Japan under U.S. military occupation, some of the first German and Japanese films that is made by German and Japanese directors were films noir. And this was interesting to me. What is the relationship between, say, noir and occupation? And film noir is something I kind of runs throughout a lot of, a lot of my work. It's a genre that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. Um, but our, our interest in this um, was to track the circulation of noir in like 10 different countries, including like Japan, Iran, India, Hong Kong, Spain, Mexico, from roughly the 1930s through to, you know, 2000 or so. Um, in order to really decenter Hollywood and the U.S. from this form that I think is so much associated with with um, with the U.S., so we wanted to sort of see the other origins of noir, think about it through the cultures of literary translation, and understand how noir maybe is circulates so well globally because it compellingly dramatizes without ever resolving, importantly, a kind of tension between local longings and global forces like war, displacement, global capitalism, Americanization, decolonization, and military occupation. Um, so we, we thought it was interesting that like national cinemas often emerge through the genre of noir because it circulates so well globally, and there's so many different ways that it can animate this tension between global forces over which someone has no control and the very locally felt ways in which this happens. Other genres do this too, but noir seems to circulate in ways that become readily readable, at least through its generic touchstones. Um, And that's the kind of, you know, a little bit of the, of the, of the previous work I had done that is about kind of, let's call it transnational cinema, sort of thinking about it in relationship to, um, cultures of globalized capitalism and forms of military and political control during what we once called like the American century. Now, um, how did you become interested in the theme of, of cinema and Anthropocene, right? And how did you start to work on this book? Uh, could you please tell us about the genesis and the... Um, and the process behind it? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, so while I was doing these other two projects, um, I was uh, became interested in, um, it was, there was a sort of turn back, I would say, to what we call like maybe classical film theory, Bazin and Krakauer and others. Um, as cinema was moving increasingly towards the digital, there seemed to be a resurgent interest in sort of the cinematic ontologies Um, not just in terms of the substrate, but also the ethics of cinema. And I took the ethical turn to also be, um, in ways I hadn't previously understood, to be also an important kind of philosophical intervention that that film and and its its attendant theories, at least in a certain kind of canon, were um, engaging in. Uh, So I was doing some work on Bazin and Krakauer, and I was very interested in the question of the animal and the non-human and questions of the post-human, and the way that these two theorists in particular, who I think are like anti-humanist humanists, humanists, um, that is, these are people who are looking to cinema's 
anti-humanist technologies in order to tell us something about a human that can become alienated from things like free will or, you know, who is caught in the throes of certain kinds of contingencies um, that could also tell us something about animals and environments. Um, I found it very deeply melancholic to work on the question of animals, even before we had the concept of the sixth extinction. Um, and as I was doing this work, um, I think the concept of the Anthropocene was kind of um, moving from its um, uh, tentative circulation in earth sciences and moving into what we would now call early um, environmental humanities. And so I think my, my book, Inhospitable World, Cinema and the Time of the Anthropocene, in some ways kind of scales up from the questions of transnational politics, occupation, and global film culture to the planetary crisis of climate change, and maybe what we could call the problem of human occupation of the earth in general. Um, but it's also interested in what cinema can do to sort of decenter something like human perception of a planet that is increasingly overtaken by um, a, a kind of Western, mostly white, capitalist, neoliberal um, vision and use for it. That, that cinema can maybe provide a kind of glimpse of this environmental catastrophe that we aren't either able to see. And I think this is something that Krakauer is very interested in helping us see. Like, how, how do we start to see the world around us stripped, from, stripped away from our, our thoughts about it? And that cinema becomes this kind of mechanism that can show us the world without our feelings, including without our love. And if we come to feel about it differently afterwards, it's, it's through the, the back door, let's say, of cinema's, um, what I call <laughs> cinema's cold love or cinema's unfeeling relationship um, to, to, to the world. Um, one final thing I should say, too, is as I was trying to understand what the mm -hmm. Anthropocene concept was doing, I mean, I think this is a, it's, it's both an alarm, but it's also a philosophical in invitation to, um, it could, because it so fundamentally challenges like humanist thought, like enlightenment paradigms of history, what counts as aesthetics. And so, I mean, I'll just say, finally, it occurred to me that cinema has always provided a view in Alan Wiseman's phrase of the world without us. And perhaps cinema could also, in the words of Wordsworth, um, show us that the world is too much with us. Mm -hmm. um, the epigraph you used for, um, for this book is a quote from uh, Bertolt Brecht's poem. It goes like this. There's, some, there's nothing but... Uh, uh, don't worry, I'm going to repeat the, the, the question, right? Um, the epigraph you use for this book is a quote from uh, Bertolt Brecht's poem. It goes like this. There's nothing but this star, I thought, and it's so devastated. It alone is our refuge, and it looks that way. Uh, why, why was uh, so important in this poem um, that you consider to um, open the book, open your book with, with this epigraph? Oh, that's a great question. It's actually the la very last thing I did. I, I, um, I, this is the thing I added just as the book was going into publication. And I was hoping to get the rights to include this fragment 
and then also to quickly <laughs> write a little bit about why I found it so interesting. And a few things about it are interesting to me. As is first, it is that, that it is a, a fragment that it's reflecting on, and this is a theme I think that runs throughout the the book, a certain kind of exilic relationship, not just to home, but but even the concept of planet, a kind of planetary home that has been destroyed at the time that Bertolt Brecht is writing, that has been destroyed by war. And I've been interested in um, throughout the book, again, is, is returning, and, and I think this is one thing that Krakauer is interesting to me, is that writing after the catastrophes of World War II, you are already engaging in a kind of post-catastrophic theory of media, theory of world, theory of culture. And um, I want to say a certain kind of clear-eyed view of what becomes possible on the other side of catastrophe, which is also something that I, I think is, is useful for thinking about the much bigger, maybe more philosophically complex catastrophe of, global, of, of pl- climate change and the, and the Anthropocene. So there's just a kind of sentiment that interests me. Mm-hmm. But there's also um, the kind of ambiguity that interests me with, with Brecht. Um, and that is, you know, is the star that he refers to and that you read out loud devastated um, and therefore our refuge is imperiled? Or is the star devastated because it's our refuge outside of which there is nothing? And there's a kind of profound ambivalence um, in this poem about how cause and effect operate. You know, is, is the refuge always already destroyed? Or have we destroyed the only refuge we have outside of which there is nothing? And there's something about this ambivalence and also ambiguity that um, really makes me feel like we are lingering on some other planet looking down on this star um, and the kind of, as we say, disaster, which has its etymological origins in Mm -hmm. a star that has gone out of alignment. Um, Mm of what it means to start to look at this little blue planet and sort of think about how destroyed it is. But he's not thinking about this in terms of like an Anthropocene concept. It's rather imagining what we're doing to a planet even after war. And I, I'm also kind of interested in the way that it's in, invoking our refuge. I mean, there is, though he is a German Jewish exile whose relationship to refuge is singular, historical, you know, shot through with genocide, there is a sense of what are we doing? Um, and I, this is a question also that Hannah Arendt is going to be asking in, in the 1950s. Like, what are we doing now? Do we understand what we're doing? And there's a sense that we, in mid-century especially, war is behind us, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what is Anthropocene? I think it's time to talk about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, as, as, as most folks know, there are a lot of competing, um, it's, it's, a, it's a fraught nomenclature. Um, at the time I was writing this book, and this was, you know, 19, 2015, and I, you know, I think I submitted it in 2017, the Anthropocene was then, as it is still now, a proposed uh, term um, from Earth scientists and stratigraphers to describe, again, the, the kind of layers of the Earth. Well, I mean, there are a lot of different ways this could be used, but it's, it's a stratigraphic terminology. And should it be accepted, and, and the stratigraphic society is still debating whether or not there is sufficient evidence um, to do this, 
it would posit that there is already a sort of uniform layer in the Earth's crusts that designate a shift from the Holocene patterns into some new um, uh, uh, geological epoch. There is then also, and this is something else the Anthropocene Working Group is very interested in, all of the kind of other epiphenomena in which the Earth system is being cast out of alignment. And I think what's interesting about the term Anthropocene, um, which is, and I want to talk about why it's fraught, is first of all, it's positing human as opposed to something else, an asteroid or some other cause. So Anthropocene is sort of naming what is the source for this shift in, um, in uh, you know, already bedrock geographic ge geologic layers you know in the earth's in the earth's crust and what also can explain these changes to the earth system which have been pushed out of their very you know sort of holocene variability by um, what they call the socioeconomic systems so the anthropocene is meant to sort of capture a shift a change an alarmingly fast one from the variabilities of the Holocene epoch, that's roughly the last you know, 11,000 years, into the Anthropocene epoch. And the start dates are also under debate. You know, there has been an idea that it starts you know, around the 1950s, but maybe we push it back to the Industrial Revolution, um, whether it's a cultural marker or a particular stratigraphic golden spike. Um, these are still some of the questions that are up for debate. I should also say that the Anthropocene itself, you know, is, is especially, I think, with um, geographers and humanists, um, has been like rightly critiqued as positing a kind of uniform humanity that is the cause of uh, global warming and the other epiphenomena that we associate with climate change or anthropogenic climate change. Um, and so I think there has been... Um, a proposal, you know, we could think about it as the capital scene, or uh, Jason O'Moore, or Victor Victor Jar Jarius Grove has proposed the Euro scene because it really is the cultures of European colonialism, extractive capitalism. Um, there's also the idea of the Plantocene and the relationship between slavery and indentured laborer and the kind of monocrop agriculture that really produces these kind of changes in an entire kind of global system that gives rise to climate change, but also to signify that it's not just everyone who's contributing equally. It's really the culture of some who are ruining the planet um, for everyone. Um, but even that the everyone is itself, obviously, it's, this is, it's unequally felt and unequally, um, unequally experienced producing harm in um, disproportionate ways. So the wealthiest are contributing most of the you know, greenhouse glasses, gases and will probably suffer less than the people who um, emit fewer um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a lot of reason to sort of critique the Anthropocene in terms of the universal humanity it operates. I use it sort of differently in, in my book to sort mm -hmm. of think about the Anthropocene as um, a certain artifice of, of human worlding that mm -hmm. I think is mirrored in cinema or that cinema can show the Anthropocene as being a certain kind of aesthetic practice um, where human culture is understood as being and I think this is how the Anthropocene Working Group understands it. There's like socioeconomic systems and then there are earth systems, that the earth systems are purported to be another fraught term, more natural, and socioeconomic terms are connected to, socio, you know, to, to human culture, which in this register becomes artificial or unnatural. And that's, for me, the interesting connection to cinema. 
uh, to cinema's mode of production in dark studios to kind of reproduce the world, um, to make it look natural, as Krakauer would say, every no, nothing natural, everything looks like nature. I can say more about that, but that's a, a wide, that's a kind of a rangy answer to a very big and important question. Uh, Professor Kay, um, you argue that cinema is the aesthetics practice of Anthropocene. How should we understand this affirmation? One of the things that interests me um, about cinema as it connects to something like what we say, like anthropogenic climate change or, or human-driven, human culture is driving um, climate change, is the sense that these... Uh, these weather events, the CO2 levels, all of this are what we would say outside of natural variability, which is to say something, if it's not natural, could we say something that is like artificial or cultural? When I say that cinema is the kind of aesthetic practice of the Anthropocene, I'm, I'm drawing on two things. I mean, first is a division. And I, I should say one, another way that I prepared for the book was I took a graduate seminar with my brilliant colleague, um, Kelly Oliver, and she, she taught a philosophy class that was going through a kind of tradition of thought about the difference between earth and world. And I, I, this is, this is super reductive, but that, you know, the earth is, is this thing that is given and world and this is, you know, Arendt, uh, Hannah Arendt, Heidegger, and others sort of thinks about the world as, as the realm of human artifice. You know, you, you take whatever natural resources are available to you and you create this kind of shelter. The world sort of shelters kind of human culture from the world, but is also inseparable from it. Like that, you know, that you are, you know, that, that these are two things that are always hanging in the balance together. With cinema, um, I think there's a heightened sense of producing a world out of that, that is that is um, a world of artifice, and what one thing that Hannah Arendt talks about in the human condition, which was an important touchstone for me in writing this book, is a desire to sort of escape. This is her diagnosis in the 1950s that she sees this desire to escape the contingencies of a natural existence. Um, and just hang with me for a second while I explain this connection. Okay. Um, she talks about te test tube procreation as a way of starting to really control natality. And she talks about the launching of Sputnik, um, which she says, you know, it is, it's a portent of global nuclear World War III, but many people were overjoyed when they saw Sputnik um, briefly in orbit because it was this human-made object that we had launched into space. And it suggested that a time could come when we leave Earth behind and inhabit a planet that we had fabricated ourselves, that the world becomes its own entity separate from this thing we call the earth, an entirely fabricated human, you know, human fabricated planet, utterly artificial in terms of the respiration systems and everything like this. And that this, this fantasy, this fantasy for flight to leave the earth behind was also a repudiation of our earthbound existence and a repudiation of the kind of contingencies that have undergirded, and I want to say a certain kind of enlightenment sense of human freedom, of human futurity, and the promises of natality. I think the film Studio is a version of Sputnik, which is to say it's about producing a totally controlled environment, including what should appear or may appear like a natural environment, entirely through resources of simulation. You cut out the natural world, natural sunlight, 
um, you know, you, you, re- you repudiate sort of on location shooting and move into a dark studio where the world can be replicated, where everything can be repeatable, predictable, um, and photographable. And not that studio, not that film necessarily entirely begins in the dark studio, but the dark studio is a paradigm that does become a kind of global paradigm, certainly up through World War II, where the way that we tell, and this is Krakauer's um, uh, formulation too, the film stages where human things unfold and that the human world in the film studio is a version of maybe Sputnik, of an entirely controlled world in which nature is simulated to look like nature. And that's what our image of nature starts to kind of look like. And so if, if this is what's happening in terms of like uh, RN's diagnosis of mid-century fixations on limiting our vulnerability to say natural variability, natural contingency, the film studio is an aesthetic corollary to this. What happens, I think, with the Anthropocene, if that's the term we want to use, is we have moved in to a kind of these planetary norms that are human created. I mean, we have moved into what seems like, and this is Bill McKibben's sense too, not Earth, but Earth, I think with an extra E or maybe an extra A, that's no longer the same planet. It's, it's a planet that's no longer given, but one that certain forms of human culture have made. And I think that's, that's a corollary. It seems like a stretch to compare this to the film studio. Um, but the more I thought it through, the more I, I see that these notions of simulating worlds, simulating environments for total abs- absolute control um, is, starts to give us a, a kind of corollary, let's say, to the Anthropocene as not just this horrible thing that is happening, but a, a form of aesthetic wish fulfillment. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, how how um, how do you link the concept of Anthropocene to uh, film aesthetics? Well, um, let me give you a few examples. If it's okay to maybe go to a chapter or two or some some particular of course, examples. Of Okay. Great. Yeah. So, um, um, I think there are, there are a lot of films, <laughs> even up, you know, through the 1920s and thirties in which, uh, you know, we, we might call it like the natural disaster movie, right? Like this, this is something that, you know, um, has, has a long, a long history, um, even before, well before CGI. Um, and for the most part, um, the way, uh, film has produced the natural disaster because you have to keep everyone safe, because you have to repeat the shot, because you want to make sure that you can, um, you know, shut down one minute and then tomorrow you can have exactly the same repeatable sunset that you had before. All of these things. Um, this is one mechanism of producing um, a vision of a natural world through the control of the dark studio. I have already said this. What interests me about the way cinema can start to crack open, um, whether as a simulation or as something that is produced through human culture and let's call it, you know, environmental design, is also something like Buster Keaton's um, weather weather comedy um, or climatography. <laughs> um, and here, what what interests me about like Keaton as as coming back to your question of film aesthetics is it's not really based on, um, I don't think his film comedy is based on our belief in the totality of weather in the way that I think um, a more realist cinema is invested in doing, that we should feel like whatever is happening is uh, is abiding by the conventions of cinematic realism. 
with someone like um, Buster Keaton, there's a, a sense of kind of discontinuous cues um, that, that the weather is always supposed to look manufactured. And by this, I mean, not just the weather, like the rain or the tornadoes, these things that happen like in Steamboat Bill, Bill Jr., but other, other of his films too. Um, but that even something like sunlight or good weather should be understood as being maybe manufactured too. And this is, you know, that, that, that these kind of gags of simulation and weather comedy are so much a part of his own slapstick comedy of a body being contingent to weather that is clearly artificial, but over which our character has no control, but over which our director has absolute control. This is a very complicated kind of array of how we understand how cinema produces artificial sets. Even on location, it produces kind of artificial weather that is then to which a character has no over which a character has no control, but we understand that the director has total control over because otherwise the slapstick um, comedy wouldn't work. It's all about timing and precision and knowing in advance how these contingent events, where a storm will hit, how the wind will blow, um, is 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 a uh, contingent entirely on those forms of absolute prediction. So that's where I think film aesthetics and an Anthropocene concept kind of come together. Another relationship, I think, is also to um, modes of um, the militarization of climate, especially during World War I, where we start to, and this is um, Peter Sloterdijk's argument um, in like Terror from the Air and other places, that the foundation of, of you know, he says, you know, one, one version of modernity is the, the process of, of um, taking background givens and, and explicating them, including things like we live in um, an environment where we can breathe the air. And the founding event of modernity, he says, is the chlorine gassing of troops at Ypres, where suddenly you're, you actually are creating an environmentally designed experience that is lethal. And this, to me, is also very similar to what happens, you know, maybe in the film studio of creating a kind of, let's say, weather event, environmental conditions, kind of on location outside that um, bring to attention these norms that were not previously visible or available to sensation because we just took them as a kind of given. Um, war, the, the tactics of warfare that, you know, sort of attack environments as opposed to just bodies and cinema, you might say take the givens of things like light, air, oxygenation, <laughs> things that are, are uh, and turns those into manipulable media that become sensible to us. Um, and do you consider, uh, Professor Faye, that um, mm, other arts, um, for instance, literature or painting, or, or theater, maybe, uh, could dispute cinema this uh, aesthetic practice of the Anthropocene? And why, or why not? Yes, that's a great question. I mean, so what attracted me to cinema is not only that, like, I'm a cinema scholar, <laughs> so this is, this is what I do. Um, but let me just take the example of, of literature. I mean, I, I am interested in these, I, I think what literature can do, and I think there's so much interesting work happening now in particular, around kind of questions of description, about what are some genres that can, um, um, this is you know, Amitif Ghosh, I think started this whole conversation, like, you know, is there something about the novel that is just not very conducive to talking about things like shifting weather, climate, these kinds of conditions? So I think novels, um, novels help us with questions of, of sensation and therefore perceptibility 
through the arts of description. With cinema and theater too, but cinema, I think even more so, I mean, cinema actually uses the same materials, the very real materials, um, and makes things happen in the world in order to produce its effects. Let me give you two examples. I mean, one, and I, I, mean, I keep going back to Krakauer because uh, we'd spoken earlier about your, your, your being interested in Krakauer, but, um, but the idea that the film studio in the 1920s, I mean, you are building real things in the film studio. These are real these are materials that one could build a world out of. There's no difference between a set, uh, you know, there's no difference between the materials that are used to create a set of workers' houses and the materials that would use to build workers' housing in the real world. Like there's the, the materiality is the same. It's just the occasion becomes different. So there's the materiality of cinema um, that that really interests me. And then there's also, as we get into something like, you know, the atomic test films or Buster Keaton's weather designs, um, you actually are producing these inclement weather events in the world using rain and um, fans to create wind, you know, wind machines, um, that there's a phenomenology in the production of these environments and worlds that has the same materiality of environments and worlds. And of course, literature is made of paper and it disappears trees in the making of it. But but cinema actually is the process by which we actually create our worlds and prop up our worlds. There's there's not a Mm -hmm. big difference in some ways between the materiality of the studio and the materiality of an apartment. It's just that one is made for somewhat more permanence and the other is pointedly impermanent that is the studio or repurposed or um, has a certain kind of artificiality to it. But, but um, there, there's not a significant difference there. And I would say in the other art forms, there is a big difference between the materiality of the thing represented and its relationship to the materiality of what we might call the world we inhabit. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, uh, Siegfried Krakauer affirms um, Film production is governed by a simulationist aesthetic, a preference for the artificial, the mechanical, the temporary. Um, why do you think um, is Krakauer so interested in this uh, truth about cinema? Well, what's always attracted to me uh, attracted me about his article. This is a, and it's it's very much a kind of tongue in cheek article, but it's also doing important things that I think are also important to our thinking about you know the Anthropocene and climate change. And this is his essay on the Calico World, mm-hmm. because there is a parallel between the way that worlds are created and the way that cinematic worlds are created. Let's say on set, because the materials are the same. He's really interested in the political lessons we gain from the film studio. And that is, this is the arrangement now on this set. These same materials could be rearranged to produce a completely different world. And our own world is also contingent, could also be rearranged. But we are inclined to see something of the human world in terms of its permanence and endurance over and against the way that it could be rearranged and that also opens up new kinds of political futures too. Um, this is his interest in both photography, how photography can, and I won't go into the, the details of this argument, but photography, when, when we look at old photographs, we start to recognize how strange they become and how the things that once clung to us, um, like a second skin, have become strange commodities, for example. But mm-hmm. when we look at 
contemporary photographs, all of that is so transparent to us. Like we don't even see it. It's only in old photographs that these items become strange and the person kind of disappears. And this gives us a sense that our, our contemporary moment is as strange as, those old, as, as it is in those old photographs. We just aren't capable of perceiving it as such. The film studio also highlights foregrounds, the contingency, the arrangement of our contemporary world. And if it can be changed around in the studio, then other changes are possible also in the world. Understanding that, you know, these are two different forms, parallel forms of artifice. The preference for the artificial that you mentioned, I think, is also about wanting absolute and total control. Um, and, you know, he'll say more about this in his later work, um, Theory of Film, wanting to break out of the totalities of, say, totalitarianism. And Arendt is, is interested in this, too. Um, but the preference for the artificial is also a kind of preference, like you don't want to shoot outdoors because you just don't have sufficient control. Indoors, the artificiality means that you have absolute and total control of worlds that you create and destroy, you know, that is the film producer um, based on uh, the production schedule. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you have mentioned um, predictable and we can we can say that there is an opposition um, between predictable versus unpredictable, uh, between control versus uncontrollable, maybe between cultural and natural. And how how do you think that um, anthropocenes? Um, Uh, is related with these oppositions and how uh, cinema can express these oppositions? Well, I might first begin by talking about how cinema might, um, well, it can both uh, express it and also maybe um, camouflage it or, or hide it from view. Mm -hmm. um, I have a chapter that I think is very much connected. So if, 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 if Buster Keaton's climate comedy has him erecting, uh, this is on location, no longer in a studio, you know, an entire city block to scale and then erecting and creating these storms on location that will destroy it. Um, all with careful you know, calibration. It means that you have to have perfect weather prediction. You have to know what the weather on location is like in order to ma manufacture the storm that mm -hmm. will destroy this manufactured town that you've created. Um, and yet the narrative in so many Keaton films is all about unpredictability, that the character cannot anticipate this world that is collapsing all around him. A different scenario about predictability and unpredictability, especially as it, it relates to the Anthropocene concept, is the atomic test films. And that's, that's another chapter in which I think there's a, a curious parallel between sort of filming on location, this time in Nevada, where, like Keaton, the Atomic Energy Commission... Um, erected to scale this kind of small mock-ups of, you know, American life, American suburban life, different kinds of homes, uh, an intersection between two streets. This is um, uh, Doomtown, um, Boomtown had various different names where um, versions of the um, American world were erected and then subjected to atomic explosions to see their endurance and to sort out various ways of um, various modes of atomic preparedness. 
The atomic test itself, though it is meant to be scientific and predicted, and um, it's to measure effects that should be somewhat known in advance, were wildly unpredictable. Um, there are so many ways in which the, you know, the, the blast would fizzle out and nothing would happen, or that the blast would be so much more powerful than anticipated and iridate, not only obviously the entire area of the test itself, but we were conducting, you know, up to 1963 and not just the United States, but the Soviet Union, the British, the French, the Chinese. I mean, this was a, a global genre of filmmaking and a, a global experiment of iridating the earth in the name of a scientific test um, whose predictability was always in question. So you might have a, a bomb that um, explodes that was four times as um, uh, powerful as anticipated, whose fallout you know, moves across the continental United States, across the ocean, and irritates other people too. But the films of the atomic test are all about, here's what we said would happen, here's it's happening, and I'm going to tell you that what we've predicted is exactly what happened, and here's one little thing that we discovered that will help us to make another test. So in that respect, where Keaton's films are about a character encountering an unpredictability as orchestrated by a director, the atomic films, which I think look, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there's a slapstick element to them, but with Keaton in mind, there is something to that in terms of the, you know, kind of... Um, a mode of survival cinema because it wasn't just houses and mannequins. There was actually, you know, military um, uh, soldiers, atomic soldiers who became the test subjects themselves who are beholden to a totally, a, a rather unpredictable, devastating weapon. And cinema turns it into a predictable, repeatable, reusable kind of image. And that's where the logics of the studio, where things can be more controlled, um, become the logics of the atomic test. Um, I should say too, that at least the, at the time I was writing, the Anthropocene Working Group was, and maybe still is, thinking that the uh, atom, this sort of signature of radiation across the planet, which, which brought to the earth elements that had previously existed only maybe in space or nowhere, um, would be a good uh, uniform start point for the Anthropocene. So that there's a relationship between atomic testing, atomic culture, and humanity at its most unnatural, that would be the Anthropocene sort of thesis where atomic testing is concerned, and you know, humanity at its most destructive, devastating, self-annihilating, um, and given over to testing a weapon that could bring about you know, the end of the planet, the end of the world, and doing so kind of repeatedly um, through, you know, up, up from, from the 19, from 1940s, uh, 1945 up to 1963. Mm, do you consider, Professor Faye, that uh, in theoretical terms, your book takes Krakauer's film theory further? So I think um, this is a, I, he's, he, I feel like Krakauer doesn't have one theory of film. I think he has many different theories of film from different parts of his life. But here's what I think, um, and this is towards the end of the book where um, I read Krakauer and Antarctica um, sort of together. And that is, you know, he is writing after the catastrophes, that is theory of film is writing after the catastrophes of World War II. And the optimism he finds there is that after war, we recognize, and this is a matter of perception, that we 
and he's speaking as a kind of universal humanity. We recognize that we are fragmentized. We, we recognize that, you know, the totalities of religion, the totalities of science, whatever has offered us a total explanation of the world that has guaranteed some sort of telos of history has been utterly shattered. And I think the way that Arendt also talks about this, I think Krakauer and Arendt would both agree that there has been a fundamental break in whatever has been understood as a kind of Western tradition of thought or of ethics or of morals. Like these are once and for all totally over. They certainly didn't save us during World War II. They certainly um, have given rise to the kind of terrible culture that kind of culminates, let's say, in forms of Western capitalism, its extraction economies, slavery. I mean, this is all part of a kind of terrible tradition on the one hand, but there should also be some kind of moral piece of it that um, was never triumphant. But for Krakauer, there's a kind of optimism insofar as these narratives that may have kept us from understanding our own fragmentation are just over. There is no total explanation any longer. And if we can recognize our own fragmentation, we can become newly attentive to the world and the planet itself as also a fragmented place. And and we can become newly attentive to particularity. This is something that cinema in particular can bring our attention to. And rather than subsuming it to the abstractions of science, to the, subs- to the abstractions of what we would now call big data, cinema can bring us back to the details of the things themselves. And that doesn't, without any kind of promise of becoming whole again. What I think is kind of new about this is it is moving um, it, it, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm pushing it any further, but putting it to different ends is that mm-hmm. one critique of, um, and I'm, I'm picking this up from Srinivasa Ravamudan, who talks about the catachronism of, of climate change, that when you're faced with predictions or when we say like we've already surpassed measurements of, say, CO2 in the atmosphere, like already now those numbers are going to increase, even if we you know, stop emitting CO2 altogether right now, we are already on a course. Like this is what we hear constantly, right? The future is already written in stone. This is a way of actually sort of thinking about what it means to find that stratigraphic trace in the geological record that is forecasting a future of the human trace on the planet millions of years to come. So there's a sense in which you know, whatever norms we have known um, have already in our future been radically, irrevocably disrupted. And there's, you know, and there's a, a, it kind of seizes us um, or can seize us with a sense of just hopelessness. There's nothing we can do. And I, what I like about Krakauer, and, and I bring him in conversation with Srinivasa Ravamudan, is, you know, rather, is, is to free us from our ideas of the future to recognize that there is still some freedom there, that, um, when we become too enthralled with the future as given, we give up on the more, um, I think, everyday short-term politics that could make a difference, kind of questions of resilience and adaptation. But also, I think Krakauer has such an interesting way of thinking of always being kind of an exile or an extraterrestrial in the world. And that, that also is a, is a way of thinking about living on a planet um, with an understanding of being already dispossessed of it. And you know, th- this for him is both an exile experience, but also a more ethical relationship to um, 
let's say, planetary citizenship or something like that. So that, that was a kind of scattered answer. But I, I, think, I think it's both about liberating the future and recognizing that there is still freedom to act, that these kind of totalities um, are, are reemerging and saying us, telling us that the future is already set. Srinivas Arabamudan says, there, there is still a future. The future is not known. And this is a really important thing for us to kind of keep in mind because it's something we can shape and change. And then Krakauer's sense of, of always being extra, being an extraterrestrial in a sense, his sense of exile is, is always feeling extra to um, something like the earth that is our refuge. And it looks this way. Now, this leads us to hospitality. Why hmm. does hospitality remains as a crucial issue in your book? Well, this is such a great question. Um, so um, I was interested in uh, initial, some early formulations of sort of climate change and looking at the metrics offered by, um, you know, like the Anthropocene Working Group. When you look at the scales or like the, the kind of the, the big data that they investigate to mark off, these are like the, the hockey stick graphs that mark off the, the, the beginning of the Great Acceleration. So it kind of starts in the 1950s and then really starting the 1970s, there's just this step change in kind of socioeconomic production in mostly, you know, the BRIC countries, you know, U.S., um, well, but both, both, you know, U.S., Canada, um, China, but also Brazil, India, um, So they're, they're looking at, you know, a certain collection of industrialized and newly industrialized countries and the step change in production. And what you what I see in these graphs are not and this is just these are just the metrics they choose are not signs of war, but signs of prosperity, like telecommunications, paper production, um, you know, uh, global exchange, travel, tourism, these kinds of things. So. What, what, what was interesting to me initially is that these all seem to be metrics about a design for living in the context of both a capitalist and maybe neoliberal world order. Like this is how one makes a life through these kinds of resources. This is how some people in some countries are making a life for themselves. And that these very processes of making a world maybe more livable by taming it, by extracting its resources, by turning all of these into commodities or for-profit ways of being in the world um, are actually what are making it an unlivable place to be in. So there's there's just that kind of dynamic in place, which I think is an oversimplification, but philosophically it was interesting to me. But the other thing is that, you know, if, if we are indeed, and I think this is true, moving beyond any, you know, move, putting pressure on a certain concept of the human, and this is something that Chuck Bayarty and others have talked about, is having a relationship to history that is bounded by certain kinds of enlightenment concepts of the self. I mean, that that's kind of over and maybe it, and for many people it has been over maybe always, but um, this also means that we have due pressures on hospitality, that hospitality as the way that we set up a home, the way we set up the world in order to live in it, that modality of living is over. It, it was, it's always been a certain kind of catastrophe, but it means that we maybe have to think about sort of pre-enlightenment modes of, of shelter, of offering shelter, a new kind of ethics for a different kind of planet. And that hospitality, I think, is both what it means to feel at home in the world, the refuge that Bertolt Brecht talks about, but also a kind of invitation that one has to offer to the stranger, to the future, um, 
uh, and understand, you know, and, and, and figure out on what terms one can be at home in this world, in a world with a planet that is so radically changing. Professor Fai, um, why did you uh, choose uh, to organize uh, your book in two parts, uh, part one on occasion and part two at the end of the world? Well, um, I was really puzzled as to how to put, to, put a, a book together. And I had initially thought of organizing the chapters in reverse chronological order to start with um, maybe Antarctica and then go back to Buster Keaton as a way of sort of moving in reverse. <laughs> But my readers' reports were like, that's just too much to ask people. So you need to get a better organizing principle. So the two parts now um, focus, I mean, all of the chapters are interested in, in a form of on-location shooting. What, what is the specificity of a particular kind of place? What are the challenges to filming it? How does it get manipulated for the purposes of making a film? And um, the current structure now is, is more or less chronological, although there are, I think, um, overlapping maybe histories from one chapter to the next, um, or continuing, let's say, futures and pasts from one chapter to the next. Um, and the first part, I guess, sort of takes place in the United States at a point, especially where the United States culture and also culture of film production is connected to um, the great acceleration and a country that is the most polluting in the history of the world, not only in terms of its practices of extractive capitalism, but also in, in terms of, and I think Hollywood in particular, um, Hollywood's role in promoting a kind of acquisitive capitalism and its vision of a good life that it circulates around the world. So I wanted, so now the first three chapters take place in the United States um, and deal with different versions, genres, let's say, of American film and different kind of filming locations where I think cinema um, can offer some insights or exposure of a relationship between producing this kind of fictional world for us to look at or a, a controlled world to look at and managing the contingencies of location where either artificial weather and the real weather um, are in conversation in some way or where you're dealing with kind of eroding um, precarious, let's call them habitats. So that's more or less, you know, from Keaton to the atomic testing range to American film noir, this is what br brings these chapters together as, as sort of three American locations, three kinds of genre cinema that I think bring um, and highlight or foreground the circumstances of making a film, film production, with modes of controlling um, an environment. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, how, how uh, can we um, link... Buster Keaton uh, movies and maybe a slap a slapstick comedy with the Anthropocene. So that's a great question. Um, one thing, and I, I didn't actually finish answering the first your first question in terms of that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book takes us to locations that are thinking about different forms of ends. One is the end of a world in um, in the the floodplain of the Three Gorges Dam in China. Um, a world that is drowned. The other is what is considered a kind of geographic end of the world in Antarctica. So that that is actually why those two chapters are separated from the, that, that, that governs the, the two parts of the book. So I, I apologize for not fully answering that question. Um, 
slapstick comedy in the Anthropocene. Well, what, what is especially interesting to me about Keaton, and he may not be the only director who does this. I mean, I think you see this also in um, some of the work of, of Chaplin, too, is a wonderful tension um, that slapstick that, that slapstick is about the comedy of contingency, by which I mean how a character is able to adjust to unforeseen circumstances. And often the humor, especially in, in uh, Keaton's movies, is a, is a kind of unwitting or seemingly bumbling character who is a misfit in his world. And then what are the circumstances that actually allow him to momentarily triumph? And that is when the world becomes utterly chaotic. This will sound like a strange comparison, but I think of like a lot of Buster Keaton's movies as being similar to like Lars von Trier's Melancholia, where you know you have a character played by Kirsten Dunst who suffers from crippling depression because uh, the circumstances of, of depression is you are living with a sense always that the world is ending, that the world is a doomed and hopeless place. But when the world actually does become a doomed and hopeless place, the person who suffers from crippling depression is actually very well adept at managing those circumstances. And I think similarly with Keaton, it's when the world starts to fall apart, when the storm breaks, when what is totally unpredicted and unexpected happens, this person who is, a myth, is, who is otherwise a misfit finds himself capable. And it's not like super heroics. It's just that everything, the thing, everything that governs his mistakes in the first part become the mistakes that enable him to survive in the second part. It's just utter contingency in this regard. So that's point one. Um, that is, in terms of like narratives of cataclysmic, unpredicted events and weather, slapstick is is really about these characters, at least Keaton's characters, who manage to survive, who turn the contingency that is otherwise the source of melodrama in other kinds of disaster movies into a source of comedy, because we have to laugh at just the kind of, let's say, pranks of gravity, how rain and wind fall, and a character's bumbling incapacity that somehow enables him to survive. The second part, though, is, um, and I mentioned this earlier, is that in order for the slapstick comedy to be pulled off, we recognize how intricately these sets are constructed, how precisely each gag needs to be timed, which means that every time, you know, Keaton survives a gag, it's because some outside force is making sure that these stochastic forces are actually controlled and predicted. And we understand this while we watch that. So if the Anthropocene, and again, as a kind of philosophical concept or invitation to think about a relationship between artificiality on the one hand over and against what as we uh, over and against something that we have once considered to be nature um, the artificiality of of Keaton's worlds in particular are about a loss of control diegetically and our sense as spectators of the total control non-diegetically of someone outside manufacturing and producing what look like or can have the appearance of of environmental chaos so there's something I think philosophically interesting about slapstick in this particular formulation as it connects maybe to the Anthropocene and how we might understand it as through this tension of the given and the artificial. Um, tell us now about your second chapter, uh, Nuclear Conditioning. How did you come across the, the, the main ideas and of, of, this, um, of this chapter? 
considering that it is um, um, it happens at the mid-century uh, uh, decades. Mm, possibly um, we are talking about uh, since um, the decades of the 1940s, 1950s. And tell us, why, why, why do you find important this specific uh, moment of the 20th century? So every generation has its scenario of end times. Um, I am a daughter of the Cold War. My scenario for the end was global nuclear World War III. That was that was the game plan. That's how that's how that's how my life. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We we I presumed we were a targeted city, and the scenario of a future to be avoided or averted was global nuclear World War III. And when the Berlin Wall fell, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to figure out my future because there might be one. And that was not that was not the plan I had. I mean, this is genuine. It was not the plan I had envisioned. But this Cold War scenario of kind of global nuclear World War III is one in which, you know, this is a, an event to be deferred. It's the worst that we can imagine. It's, it's like the annihilation of the planet without any kind of remainder of human culture. Like it would be the absolute end, total and a kind of totality of destruction. So what interested me, given my own history about the atomic test films, is that there was like there was an atomic bomb exploded like once every nine days for you know between nineteen forty to nineteen sixty you know from nineteen forty five to nineteen sixty three, which to put it differently we haven't avoided World War Three we we lived through it there was this atomic every day that I both knew about and did, I mean I was born after nineteen sixty three but like that nuclear war happened it was just presumably supposed to be in these kind of hidden away nuclear test sites and the invisible irradiation has circulated. You know, it's in the dental record of, of every person who was around during atmospheric testing. It has in the Marshall Islands, especially disappeared entire, you know, uh, islands. It has displaced entire populations, but we never declared war as such. And so what's interesting to me about these atomic test films from this scenario of end times is the everydayness of the explosion, the, um, uh, the uh, I guess, atomic fallout, which is not visible to cinema, and um, the way that these films were used to both test and train as much as they were used to film the testing and the training. So the films had these two dual mechanisms that I think are also about habituating people to this new everydayness and the necessity of living with weapons of mass destruction that were going to be exploded all the time. So if we're talking a little bit about the Anthropocene in the way that Arendt does, thinks about, say, um, Sputnik, of living on a planet where we become not conditioned by the, uh, the natural conditions of Earth, but we become increasingly self-conditioned by human-made circumstances, human-made atmospheres. Um, I feel like atomic or nuclear conditioning is, is really uh, a pronounced and utterly perverse version of this, um, and one that I think also indicates a different kind of endpoint for the Anthropocene. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by this. I mean, first of all, the atomic every day is that, you know, how many of these bombs were exploded, how many films, I mean, you know, over 6,000 films were made of these atomic explosions. Nevada is one of the most nuclear bombed places on earth. And the tests were meant, as I already mentioned, 
to take something that finally was pretty unpredictable and turn it into, frankly, a super boring narrative. I mean, these are really boring kind of, ex- I want to call it a, a different version of experimental cinema at mid-century. And I compare this also to Andy Warhol's screen tests that are also testing the durability of his, um, of his subjects to endure the filming process. And that's part of what these atomic tests are doing. Um, but the other part of it is, you know, if nuclear war, for those of us who lived through the Cold War, was a future in which humans disappear without a trace, atomic testing, as it is connected to the Anthropocene, is, a, is the world Earth as a human archive without any natural remainders, a totally different scenario that these atomic traces are just part of a kind of artificial world making, artificial destruction that actually ramps up because of the Cold War, that we make ever more durable houses, ever more durable concrete bunkers. We become obsessed with the preservation of materials in the event of their destruction, that we actually start to build up this sort of sedimented layer of, of stuff um, in the face of a global nuclear war. But what we actually are moving towards in the Anthropocene um, scenario is not that we'll all disappear. It's actually that these traces will never disappear, that it's actually the natural world that will disappear. And nuclearism might be part of this culture of, of accumulation, of archiving, of preservation in the face of this, um, of this event after which that is global nuclear World War III, there would be no after. So this this is kind of what I, I hope that makes sense. I'm I'm you know I'm <laughs> like I'm I'm in my own little headspace yeah. here. But this this is this is what really interested me about the atomic test films and I think their obvious connection to Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton builds a town and destroys it. The atomic test films are about building versions of American life and then building the bombs to destroy them. And then there's this kind of negative dialectics. All right, well, that house burned down. Let's build an even better house. Okay, that house survived. We need a better bomb. So, and you're you're just going through more destructive bombs and materials that can withstand more destruction until the point becomes actually there is no way of surviving this. Uh, The bombs are so destructive um, that, you know, you just start kind of imagining life underground or something like this as a, as a means of survival, but for what and to what end becomes increasingly unclear. So I, th- I think there's a pivot point of thinking about different kinds of scenarios and end times and how one prepares for them and what kind of futures you're trying to avoid and in the process producing new different catastrophic futures in that mode of avoidance. And that, that's what I feel like the nuclear films start to really capture. And I can say more about their connection to, to Warhol and other forms of testing and training, that to watch the film is always, for the, particularly for the atomic soldiers, to watch these atomic test films is also to start to prepare to participate in these atomic maneuvers. So they not only capture the test itself, they are used to train the next batch of people to endure the test. And the connection between practicing military maneuvers and becoming an atomic test subject, which would actually be a kind of violation of the Nuremberg laws in terms of the consent to be a test subject, um, is itself something that the film is really careful to um, careful to, to, uh, to emphasize that this is about training. It's not about testing. But of course, what is the difference between training and testing when what you're doing is testing weapons and training soldiers to, to endure that blast? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now um, 
we move on to the um, next chapter, chapter three, the ecologies of film noir. H how can we connect film noir uh, to uh, the um, previous chapters? Mm. Um, a few ways. I mean, first, though the Keaton film, you know, has uh, storms in it, um, this is not a book about, you know, storms or natural disaster. I don't do natural disaster. I, there's something a little counterintuitive about the films that I choose or um, the uh, the genres I focus on, um, in part because I think there had been other work on it. The other thing is I'm, I'm really interested in the, the sort of specificity of the Anthropocene thesis, which is not just about weather. It's also about sedimented culture. And... What interests me about about film noir um, uh, first is it's not you know you would never think about this as like a place that you would go to like learn about nature right you know this is not these aren't like nature movies it's precisely because there is no nature it's precisely because these these are um, characters who are mostly living in the utterly built world of American cities because so many of these films and this is something Edward Dimenberg has already I think beautifully um, explored in his book on noir. Um, that, that film noir is attracted to these urban neighborhoods that are themselves on the cusp of disappearance. And I've been interested in thinking about this as like these, these are habitats that were created for human living that were never very, you know, that were never very welcoming to human life, but that are also now on the cusp of erasure, either based, you know, because of urban, new urban planning designs, or um, even because of nuclearism, there was a, an effort, especially in Los Angeles to, denucleate cities, that is to eliminate city centers as being densely populated with um, uh, residential uh, neighborhoods so that, you know, places like Los Angeles would not be as good a target. So you sacrifice the city so that it's not as good a target by um, dispersing the population out, out into suburbs. So there's a very clear connection between certain American cities and nuclear preparedness but there's also a sense of this is the city that bit by bit is degraded and crumbling because <laughs> the United States and Soviet Union are putting so much of their money into weapons and, and not into cities, which become these, these sites of kind of civic neglect. So my interest in noir, though, also is to think about the unnatural habitat as an unwelcoming place for human habitation, but also that noir is really about giving up. It's about learning how to die. It's about refusing a certain kind of um, commodity culture of the great acceleration. These are characters who um, uh, whose aspirations are are so often um, unrealized that I think they kind of this is a different kind of training, and maybe this is how it connects to the um, uh, atomic test films. Of you know of in giving up, they sort of teach us how to die, and I'm particularly interested in how film noir is teaching like white heterosexual American culture, white Americans who are the most consuming, most polluting at mid-century. This is the group it targets, and in these sort of scenarios of death, teach us how to die, teaches teaches a culture that it needs to die. And, and insofar as, and Montaigne talks about this, that, that, that the task of philosophy is to teach us how to, how to die. This is also, I think, where, where Hollywood films become their most philosophical. So um, it's a counterintuitive and, and maybe a little funny chapter, but you know, I'm, I'm interested in sort of parsing it across these kind of three different 
um, you know, through through tenancy, the fact that most um, of our noir heroes are are renters, that this is a new kind of rental agreement, that you know, that a sense of of always being temporarily in residence, which I think can be connected also to a kind of exilic culture of dispossession that Krakauer advocates for in a totally different context. Um, That they also, I think there's a kind of radical anti-humanism to film noir, particularly through its like insurance narratives, that because insurance tracks behavior and not intention, that these characters sort of recognize that whatever they're whatever whatever they may think that they're doing, it's the behavior that matters. I think this is also a very, and this is other people have talked about this, though not in the context of the Anthropocene, that noir gives us an environmental account of human behavior. It really is about how behavior and intention kind of part ways. And that you start to find yourself, at least our our noir heroes do, and double indemnity is a great example of this, of being a sort of an example of big data, an example of a species, but you have to kind of give up a sense of your individual specialness, your individual identity, whether it's because you're in the genre of noir, which just has its tropes, or you're caught in the trap of the insurance or actuarial models, which kind of based on everyone else's behavior, predict your behavior. And sure enough, whatever your intention might be, your behaviors kind of track in this direction. So it also teaches you to kind of give up on a certain kind of relationship to the future, um, to live much more in the present. And also, I think it's interesting, um, their relationship to cash. I mean, even though they are always about getting cash and wanting riches, um, they articulate a desire for the good life, which they can never achieve. And sometimes it turns out that they are already, in fact, kind of dead. So insofar as noir can be a genre of critique, not only of kind of capitalist consumerism, the traps of feeling like you have an individual identity or a sense of kind of white privilege at, at mid-century. Um, Mantia Diawara opens his, uh, he has a great chapter on noirs by noirs. And he's like, you know, one, one way that you can understand like Hollywood noirs is what happens to characters when they lose their privilege of whiteness. And maybe in this regard, this chapter is about a kind of white hetero reproducing culture that, that just needs to die. And I'm, I, I really kind of embrace noir's pessimism as um, not the same as nihilism. That is, these are still characters that want things. They are still characters that strive to have a human life. But what constitutes a human life in the United States at mid-century turns out to be a catastrophe. Professor Fai, we are going to move on to the second part of your book, um, At the End of the World. And the fourth chapter is called Still Life, upon Yashanke's uh, film, Still Life. Why did you choose uh, this film to, to build this chapter? Well, I was interested in some of those big matrices or matrix of, of the Great Acceleration. What, what are the kinds of um, terraforming activities that are the sort of signatures of the Anthropocene? So I'm going to go back like atomic testing. It's atomic testing is not one of the um, is not one of the big data points for the great acceleration, but the nuclear imprint upon the planet, which is lodged even in the ice cores everywhere could be an interesting way to think about the starting point because it's such a clear signature. It's so clearly anthropogenic and artificial. But the other big thing that happens is, of course, in terms of terraforming, is the creation of mega dams. And 
what interested me about the Three Gorges Dam is first, it's it's very long history. I mean, Sun Yat-set imagined um, creating this dam along the Yangtze, you know, uh, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. It was taken up again, you know, by by Mao Zedong, and then you know only much later actually um, put into place. But it's really representative of what. Um, a certain kind of, um, this is Rob Nixon's term, kind of national performance art of demonstrating what it means to have arrived by a capacity to move people, to move earth, to change the direction of water, to to fundamentally sort of shape the landscape is the sign of state power. And this is happening in China when I just, you know, this is convenient, I suppose, as China starts to compete with and even overtake the United States in terms of CO2 emissions, in terms of its own ambitions to continue to kind of quickly modernize after um, official, you know, we might, I guess, a kind of mode of capitalist or posthumous socialism um, to start to harness these kind of natural resources in order to produce kind of green energy into the future but also to announce China's power, just sheer power of the state. So it seemed like a really important historic event. It's the largest dam, you know, uh, it's, it actually, you know, it's not just, as I say, uh, an event in world history in terms of all of the world records it broke, you know, it actually changed just a little bit, the tilt of the earth on its axis. It changed just minusculely, um, the rotation of the Earth cycle, like it changed the planet. So it is such an important structure, so long in the making, um, and so indicative of various world building projects that governments undertake, maybe in the name of so-called green energy. This is supposed to be a good thing. This is how we, you know, move away from, you know, uh, fossil fossil fuels into you know, recurring natural resources, but it is also a total catastrophe and leads to, you know, extinction events. It leads to earthquakes. It leads to all other kinds of things happening. I think it just in this way symptomatizes various forms of world building, energy generating projects that destroy life, destroy worlds in other places. Like this, this, this to me is a, a little bit like the kind of uh, negative dialectics of nuclearism. This is a certain kind of ne- negative dialectics of um, of green energies that are just laying waste to ecosystems and um, producing other kinds of unforeseen potential problems. So that's one. That's what attracted me to the Three Gorges Dam. But your question is about Zhe Zhengke's film, and um, this is a. I mean, I've I've long loved his work. I do not have expertise, and this is probably evident in this chapter. I don't have expertise in Chinese cinema. I do not speak Chinese. Um, but I was interested in, um, I think, what you know, both how the film focuses on visitors, and so I think this kind of question of hospitality is really important in this film. And maybe I think the idea of of hospitality as as being a central concept of the book comes from this film. That here are visitors from from elsewhere who are looking for people who are who have kind of been lost and or disappeared into this floodplain that is disappearing 2,000 years of Chinese history at, at the rate of about, what, you know, 10 years to fill up, two years to get rid of, well, two years to kind of take everything down in about 10 years or five years to, to fill up. Um, but 
but also that the Three Gorges Dam itself is oblique to the story. Um, it, you know, we only see it once, so it's 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 like this kind of background um, structure phenomenon that is causing everything to happen, and that we hardly ever get to see as such. And I think this is the kind of oblique optics that, in general, keep the phenomena that we associate with the with the Anthropocene from view. Um, I think this film symptomatizes something like that. So those are kind of three reasons why I was attracted to it. And I'll give you one more. And that is the um, uh, English language title is Still Life. And, and Ja speaks quite eloquently about this still life, about why, why this title, about how we understand stillness in this movie and I was interested in the still life genre of painting, which is very much a kind of Western tradition that I think he takes up in a lot of interesting ways, which is all about eliminating the human from view. That, that it's such um, Norman Bryce, and I love his I love his book on this. Um, is just an insult to the human. The still life is, is just so many insults to the human. Um, at the same time, his uh, Chinese title, "The Good People of Fengxi," um, is is also uh, a kind of reference to Bertolt Brecht. Der Gute Mensch of Szechuan, and so it also kind of ties into some of the German materials that I that I've been working with, and of course it's also kind of moving us from celluloid. And these last two chapters are interested in what we um, what climate scientists have talked about the Anthropocene as being a no analog world. That is to say, a world without any precedents in the geological record that can help us to really forecast what is to come. But I'm interested in the idea that the fast-changing climate, weather, is also no analog insofar as also being too fast or not of the right temperament for cinema. And so that Jaws film is a digital film is also interesting to me. When we arrive at the end of a world, and he says that you know Feng Shi and, and the other surrounding cities and towns were disappearing too fast for him to get on film, he had to shift to digital filmmaking in order to capture this quickly disappearing place. It tells me something about not just the end of an era, but, but the kind of ends of a medium. Um, so there are a lot of reasons to be attracted to this film, to this story, and Jaw's very eloquent explanation of his attraction to this site and what it might mean to elegize a space as seen from like aliens, that is like there are these kind of alien ships from outer space and these visitors who aren't at all attached to this area. And it's only in the background that we see these migrants who are being forcibly dispossessed of their homes. And that this is the actual, you know, drama of the story that rarely kind of comes to the foreground or only occasionally comes to the foreground, but it, it requires a different kind of optics, a different kind of way of seeing. And in this respect, I think this is also a film that trains us to see differently. Well, uh, you mentioned um, Bertolt Brecht's play, The Good Person from Sichuan. And uh, I was thinking when I, when I read the, the first verses of Brecht's poem that uh, in order to talk about hospitality and inhospitality, um, various uh, uh, or a great number of Brecht's plays are... Um, um, are, are placed in um, in situations in hidden hospital situations, for instance, uh, the good person from from Sichuan, uh, but also uh, the Tripenny Opera and, and and others. So, 
And what, what, what do you think about this and, and the relation with this chapter specifically? Well, I'm, I, I thank you for that question. I mean, what uh, I, I'm going to answer it a little bit differently because what, what really interested me about the, um, the, the, the good person from Szechuan is how it goes back. So both still life and let's say the scenario of Bertolt Brecht's play go back to sort of ancient, pre-modern theological um, scenarios of hospitality. You know, why, why do you welcome the stranger despite mm-hmm. that this could be devastating to you? Because it could be a god, and you know, um, you know, Zeus. I think it's Zeus. Zeus is the god of hospitality. I was rereading the um, new translation of the Odyssey, but you know, you you are willing to risk and give a lot because one never knows when a god is is um, is descending on the earth and testing your generosity, and you know, to refuse hospitality is to risk everything, and yet to let in the stranger who isn't a god is also to risk everything. So um, the, 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 good, the good person, the good woman of, of Szechuan is, is also a kind of, the gods are testing something. Like, are, are there any good people in, in Szechuan um, for us to think that this whole place is worthy? And if not, should this whole area just sort of, you know, be destroyed? Or what, what, what does one do with a place where gods cannot find that kind of hospitality. And, um, you know, they, the gods don't stick around to kind of give us any answer in keeping with Bertolt Brecht. We have to, we, the audience, have to kind of figure, figure out um, these kinds of things. But I feel like hospitality also then becomes the kind of centerpiece of, of Jaws film insofar as the, the, the different portions of the film, toffee, um, liquor, um, tea, are also these kind of gifts that one brings when you come to a home, when you come to a city. These are offers of hospitality that are connected to kind of Mao's era of, of um, very restricted <laughs> commodities. Um, and that hospitality is this kind of test. And I think this film is also trying to figure out on what terms this world should be preserved, um, what, what, what out of these ruins should be protected. But maybe there's also a sense, and I think this is what also is so shocking about Jaws' film, is that there are also some things that maybe should be buried. It's not as if everything that's happening here, it's not as if all of the people we encounter are necessarily good people, whatever that might mean. Some of these people we, we just don't know very much about. Nor is it clear that the world that is getting buried is one we would necessarily always want to preserve. But there is a larger harm that is coming, and that is this massive dam that is just kind of um, leveling or racing or submerging um, this entire life world. So I think that has been my, my, my interest in, in, in Brecht's um, bringing, uh, I mean, you might say his, his interest in the ancient theological fable that can be resurrected for a kind of modern politics and a modern kind of ethics um, uh, and a, a kind of art form that leaves the responsibility with the spectator or with the audience to understand what the problem is and to understand <laughs> and, and your own task to sort out the terms of world repair and the terms of, of what, um, of what can't be repaired. I mean, I think, I, and I feel like these, these are, um, I feel like Brecht and, but a, to a lesser extent, Ja, but these are also didactic exercises. I don't think Ja Zhenke is a didactic filmmaker, but in echoing Brecht, there is a, uh, not, I wouldn't say a burden, but there is something placed on the spectator 
to figure out the question um, of good people, of what needs to be preserved, and of where and we where we can spy and see the injustice that has been imposed on, you know, millions of people to see their world just be submerged by government fiat. Now, Professor Jennifer, let's move on to the final chapter. Antarctica and Siegfried Krakauer's extraterrestrial film theory. Um, what a title. Please, uh, how, how could we, uh, how, how should we uh, uh, understand this, this chapter and the importance of, of Krakauer in, in your book? Well, one thing that has interested me, and this is not my research, but a lot of writing on Antarctica. So I was interested in reading some naturalists, uh, fiction writers, and, um, and also some accounts of, you know, Antarctic exploration. Um, but Mario Siskind has a great essay on Antarctic, Antarctica's exceptionalism. And his argument is that, you know, unlike the other continents, you know, Antarctica seems to be both an exception to and thus such a critique of the projects of empire and colonialism um, that there, there's, at least for much of its history, that's changed now, but for much of its history, it didn't seem like there was anything there to bring back to empire. You know, it, it wasn't clear that there was a resource there to, to extract or ice that would even endure the journey. It was unreachable. It couldn't be colonized. It was impossible to live there year round. I mean, all of the kind of ways in which colonialism and empire, there were no people to um, <laughs> to conquer, um, no animals necessarily readily available to, <laughs> to find and put in zoos. I mean, all of these things that are about the development of a certain kind of enlightenment globe, Antarctica resisted. And in, this, and, and in some respect also, you might say, just by its very existence, critiqued. So that was an attraction to Antarctica as a place. And I was also interested in its, you know, resistance and difficulty of cinema. I mean, if um, it's, it's not, uh, it, you know, it's cold, it's too cold, you know, the film breaks um, uh, in winter, it's too dark. Um, and there was a sense that, you know, the pole itself, there's nothing there. It's just a sort of an expanse of ice. Like there's not um, a thing at the pole that you, that you can reach. So I also feel like it's an interesting critique of cinema and, and the way that cinema is really about, let's say, a certain kind of human world. But in capturing Antarctica, cinema gives us a sense of an earth outside of the world, an earth outside of a human use. Like there's, there's this other feature that cinema can capture um, that can't be fully contained into narrative or the way that Krakauer talks about the film studio where human things unfold. And moreover, uh, you know, those people who hang out in Antarctica in space and, um, you know, in the uh, science stations and everything are leading an utterly artificial life. Like you can only live in Antarctica through totally artificial Sputnik, Sputnik like, you know, means you have to erect an entire, you know, everything has to be brought to you. There is no natural way to exist on Antarctica. So that is my starting point. And I was so interested in how films about Antarctic exploration really couldn't capture at the same time sort of human experience on the one hand, and let's say what Antarctica had to offer to film on the other. It, I, there was a, a, these films are just so strange in terms of what one is supposed to find when one goes there to film. And there's a recurrence there of there being like kind of nothing there. So Antarctica becomes either totally separate from a certain kind of human use or becomes a place onto which 
human interiority is projected. It just becomes the place of human suffering or the place of human endurance. Um, but I wanted to turn to it as this exceptional space of the earth, but maybe not of the world for the reasons that I've just explained. And that this seems to me to be a recurring motif in writings about Antarctica. Um, so I look at these films of, of, of exploration, which are, you know, weird mishmash genres where the story and its illustration are always kind of going in separate directions because, and this is something that Bizen understands about like, you know, the film Contiki, you, you can't survive and also be holding a camera all the time. So you're just going to get a few images of some penguins. And you're just going to show those over and over again while the narrator tells us about these wild journeys that, of course, no film could capture. And I, I love this divergence. I think that's so interesting. Um, but Krakauer was interesting to me also as, you know, um, a, film, a film and photography cultural theorist who was interested in the way these media photography, cinema, could both reconnect us to our fragmented world and also teach us to see the world outside of our feelings of it. Um, and I feel like Antarctica is an interesting test case there, you know, that you can look in, at, at Antarctica and sort of think about it in terms of human experience. Like there's a history of Antarctica that's just about the history of exploration, but what is the natural history of Antarctica would be a completely different story. But I feel like Krakauer is can help us to sort of theorize um, what it would mean to sort of engage Antarctica for itself outside of kind of human history. And rather than incorporating it into human history, understand a kind of fragmentary planet and fragmentary fragmented narrative that um, Antarctic abstraction can maybe find it a certain kind of particularity through cinema. The other thing that interested me obviously about Antarctica too, is that it only became like fully mapped, like in the late nineties through digital technologies. And at that point it was also already kind of starting to melt, to morph. And that Antarctica increasingly exists as this kind of digital object that no sooner do we understand what it might look like, how it's shaped and how it's mapped that the forces of global warming are, are already changing. And as I, I mean, literally, as I was finishing that chapter, like a giant chunk of one of the, you know, ice shelves, like calved and floated off into the ocean. And I'm like, you know, the, the map will have to be redrawn yet again. And no sooner do we understand Antarctica that it, it already starts to kind of morph and change. Um, so I think that was part of it. And my interest in, in Krakauer too is just, you know, that is a place where you do become kind of extra territory, extra, a kind of extraterrestrial. It's used as a kind of a, um, uh, uh, testing area for, for space travel. Um, it's also one of the last places, I think, I don't know if this is still true at the time I was writing it was, but it's not a sovereign area. So, you know, you don't need a passport, a visa or papers to go there. Like politically, it's such an interesting exception so that it's melting is important not only for what it does ecologically, um, but also I think it's a political emergency too. It's really the last place on earth where a person without papers can go, but uh, it, such that one can survive there. So there's more to say about, about this chapter, but I, I feel like the kind of Antarctic exceptionalism on the one hand and Krakauer's sort of theory of media is always making us feel like extraterrestrials, always making us or enabling us if we want to, to have a productive estrangement from the things we see or enable us to see the world outside of our feelings about it, um, kind of go hand in hand and become mutually um, illuminating. Now we come to the end of the book. Um, 
the, there's a final conclusion uh, that you entitled The Epoch and the Archive. Tell us, please, a bit about it. Um, well, this is like, you know, when you get the reader's reports back and they're like, you need a conclusion. So you're like, okay, I need to figure out how to conclude this beyond what I thought was my conclusion. Um, and this was very serendipitous. Um, as I was nearing my deadline and trying to figure out what what to write or how to how to think about something that would sum up what what I'm, I'm still struggling with. These are terms that I still find very complicated that are, you know, you asked me what the Anthropocene is and I can tell you about some of the critiques, but I'm still struggling myself to really understand, as Jean-Luc Nancy says, like this is a philosophical earthquake and I don't think I have the full mental capacities to get my head around everything that this means. Um, but I was very interested in um, uh, the film... Uh, Dawson, oh no, I'm about to say Dawson's Creek, but that's like a TV show. Um, Dawson City, Frozen Time, um, which came out in 2017. Like that was just hitting theaters as I was getting this book to to press. And um, what what interested me about about this book, um, sorry, about the film, is um, I'm trying to. Um, Bill, this is Bill Morrison's film. So Bill, Bill Morrison's 20. 2016 or 20, it might be 2017, actually, Dawson City, Frozen Time. And so um, I feel like this film, again, I'm going to use the word sort of symptomatizes something that really interests me about the Anthropocene as the sedimentation of culture. And that is, these are films, silent films that uh, were unearthed in um, the upper, um, uh, in the Arctic, um, or close to the Arctic Circle in Dawson City, um, that had been sort of uh, refuse. They were they were trash. Um, they'd been buried as trash. Then the trash is you know excavated and valued again as kind of cultural treasure. And it's this relationship between human culture as trash and human culture as something that should be archived and preserved that I think is also about what are the archives of the Anthropocene. So when you, there's a really great article by one, I think it's Helen Waters. Um, he's one of the um, uh, scientists connected to the Anthropocene working group. And it's about like, what are the um, archives of the Anthropocene? So we think of archives, that is human archives, as, you know, the important uh, aspects of law, of culture, but documents that we have selected to be preserved because we find them significant. These are the things that have been slated for preservation because they matter. And against the archive that we tend to think of is all of the trash that we just discard. But the Anthropocene archive, one of it is just like trash dumps, trash heaps. Like this is actually going to be the kind of archive of the Anthropocene in, in millions of years of time, which is the exact opposite of how we think of as an archive. So with Dawson City, Frozen Time, we see this kind of transformation happen. What was kind of, you know, buried as waste as a kind of garbage dump of films gets resurrected as culture. And this, to me, speaks to what is the, the curious form of the long-term meaning of human culture as the Anthropocene thesis understands it in millions of years of time. It'll be compacted into a layer in the Earth's crust, and some alien archaeologists are going to have to figure out, oh, there were these creatures that left this thing, or maybe the creatures are this thing. That's what we know, right? So 
what's the, the, that's part one that made me interested in these films, that these films had reached the end of the line in terms of distribution. So once they went to Dawson City, you don't send them back. The shipping is too much. They're not going to go on to play anywhere else. They are worthless. So they float them down the river. They light them on fire. They bury them in the permafrost, which has now become defrosted. Um, but the films themselves... I think are such interesting archives. And if you watched any of Bill Morrison's films, you know this. They, um, you know, as the decay, in this case, decay from water, starts to change the look of the image, it's as if the characters in these silent films know that they're going to be decomposed, know that they're sort of subject to this kind of decomposition. And um, it's not clear that they are. Um, um, I'm trying to think about about how to formulate this. I mean that that these are both archives of a human culture of these lost gestures of these people, but we don't see stories when we watch these old films. What we see is like this kind of anthropology of these lost humanoids. Like they they feel very much the way that Krakauer talks about early photography. It's just they're wearing strange clothes. It's more like anthropological objects than fictions. At the same time, the way that it's decaying is a sense <clears throat> of the way that human culture itself becomes refuse. Um, and this, we start to see this in the way that the image is kind of inundated by water, anticipating a watery world, but also the way the culture itself starts to break down into sort of chemical toxicity. So the epilogue then was interested in the epoch and the archive in those, in these kinds of, um, these terms of, of what is preserved and what is the meaning of what is preserved and how will that meaning be understood in a hundred years and a million years, um, I, and I end with another quote from Srinivasa Ravamudan that, you know, maybe in the future, and this is his idea, not mine, that whatever human culture is now will, is, is already the new nature. And it is against some version of us that new life forms will formulate their critique, will create their new cultures. We will be the new nature. And I, I feel this coming out of that film or the, the documentary about these films. Well, Professor Fay, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we end our interview, I wonder if you could tell us um, a bit about uh, what research projects you are working on now. That's a generous question, um, and I'll keep it short. I have um, two things, and I don't know how big or little they are, but one is an extend ex extension of some of these questions, um, one that is about the Anthropocene, and in particular, the um, unintentionality thesis, um, that there's such a sense of, um, though there are bad corporate actors and bad cultures, so many people describe the Anthropocene as, the as a kind of unintended consequence of, of um, sort of first world culture. And I've been interested in thinking with Hannah Arendt, who of course has uh, an unintentionality thesis in her account of the banality of evil. And wanting to sort of think about the sort of banality of evil and the unintentionality thesis of the Anthropocene and what this means for finding new paradigms for taking responsibility of a kind of evil toxicity that might be unintended, but also might be um, something that we're not fully capable of perceiving and seeing, and, and, and seeing, which is not to say we don't take responsibility, but we need to find, and this is Susan Nyman's phrase, new idioms for assuming responsibility. So this is, this is one kind of small set of questions that's coming out like in an essay form. The other is maybe a, a, another turn, um, and that is uh, thinking about the relationship between um, sincerity and the media of appearance. 
um, in particular the way that cinema and other forms of digital culture um, produce new visibilities of human interiority and to what extent it gives is, is also a gateway to um, sort of intelligibilities. And I'm guided right now by Hannah Arendt and Stanley Cavell on the question of what thinking is and how it becomes manifest on film, a kind of phenomenology of thinking. And I'm not quite sure where it'll go from there, but that's something I've been reading and thinking um, a lot about in the last um, month or so. Actually, well, more than a month. I've been thinking about it for a while. <laughs> well, Professor Fay, I'm really looking forward to reading your new works. Thank you so much for talking with us today. All the luck and success for what is coming. Well, thank you so much, Gustavo, for these great questions and um, for reading my book, which is such a great gift. And to anyone who's listening, thank you for listening to this. Um, you write a book and you don't know that anyone will ever read it or look at it. You know, you just sort of send it out into the world. So <laughs> I'm very grateful for this. So I, I wish you all the best. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Professor Fay. It was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Film.